Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the Kundalini Yoga 3HO community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and I was born and raised in this community, so the people of our community matter to me. And I want to thank all of you listeners for tuning into the stories that have come forth. <clears throat> if you'd like to donate to our podcast, you're welcome to at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. And please share these episodes with someone you love, someone from our community that hasn't yet tuned into the conversations that are taking place. At the beginning of every podcast, I like to share the intentions for why I started this podcast. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural misappropriation and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle, dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and lightwashing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. Number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other support therapy as needed, draw your own conclusions, and be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. This is episode 21, and I want to welcome today's guest. His name is Dave Dudham Kulsa. He was born and raised in the Anchorage, Alaska ashram to his parents, Guru Bandhu Singh and Hari Atmakar Kalsa, both 3HO Kundalini Yoga practitioners. Shortly after he was born, uh, the Anchorage, Alaska ashram closed down, and that was run by the Nirvairs at the time. At the age of 13, he left Alaska to attend Midipiti Academy in Amritsar, India. He spent five years at MPA but before returning to the U.S. for college and professional life. He is currently a freelance photographer 
a videographer and photographer specializing in environmental conservation and government. I want to welcome you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on today, Dave Dedham. <clears throat> I know I had heard uh, your story on one of the listening calls that was kind of a, an insular thing happening in 2020. And so thank you for making yourself available to speak on our podcast today. Why do you feel it's important that you share your story in this platform? Yeah, I mean, I've been inspired by all the sharings that have happened on this podcast so far. And um, I think for those of us that are interested in sharing it, it I mean, for me, it's like, it's kind of a cathartic experience to talk about the experience and just for people to know about it. Because, you know, there's a lot of layers of being a person and uh, we all go through hard times, but, you know, it's, it's important to share those hard times because not everyone should have to go through those. So um, hopefully in sharing this, we're putting it out in the world and encouraging people to think about the choices that they make too. And, and when they see things happening, um, you know, to, to say something about it. Choices to stay silent or to speak up or to redirect the pattern, so to speak, the silent pattern. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think it's really important to change the silent culture of just like, oh, I'll just deal with it within myself. I don't want to burden anybody else, so to speak. And yet it's, we free each other as we free ourselves from these confines of shame and isolation. So, yeah, for sure. Thank you. So um, I don't even know where you want to begin, but tell us a little bit about being born into the Dharma and what that was like, and then your transition into India or wherever you'd like to start, actually. Do you sure. want to start with when the revelations came out in 2020, or do you want to bring us back? I'll just start from the very beginning. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to make one small correction. I was I was actually born after the the Anchorage Ashram closed down um, in a trail in a trailer um, in Anchorage. So, like, I, my mom was pregnant with me uh, in the Anchorage Ashram, and then right before, like, a, about a month or two before I was born, then they, uh, the Ashram closed down. Um, they were the last ones to leave, actually. Uh, and the Nevers said, sorry, like, no, there's, uh, we're, we have to close this operation now and um, you need to find another place to stay. So, um, so yeah, to start at the beginning, uh, you know, my parents were uh, living in Anchorage in the ashram. And um, like I said, when uh, my mom was about, you know, seven or eight months pregnant with me, the ashram closed down. Um, and so they were able to talk with some friends of theirs who had a trailer in Anchorage and it was in a trailer park. And then I was born. Uh, my mom loves to talk about how I was born in an underwater bath. Like she put me in the bath and gave birth. And uh, wow. so she always talks about how I'm a water baby. And <laughs> that's one of her favorite things to talk about. But uh, yeah, like, you know, overall, so like as a, as a kid growing up in Alaska, um, I, you know, I, like I said, I was, um, I was born in Anchorage, but um, and I, up until I was about a year old, um, my parents were living in that trailer. Um, and then they were searching for a more permanent place to live. And so they moved out to Wasilla, which is like an hour drive north. Um, it's just around the bay from Anchorage. So you have to drive around the whole bay to get there. Mm. Um, and so they found a, 
like a really nice like cedar A-frame house. Uh, it was out in the woods and, you know, really beautiful location. Um, and that's where I grew up until I was 13. So yeah, growing up in Alaska, um, you know, I really did not interface that much with 3HO people in Alaska because there was, I mean, it's Alaska. There's, there was no one within, you know, uh, at least like a dozen miles of where, <laughs> where I lived really. Um, so it was very insular, but, you know, um, but I did go to, you know, my parents always made it to summer solstice. Um, and so every summer I remember getting on the plane and going to New Mexico and um, like my favorite thing to do at solstice was to look for lizards and uh, try and catch them. And I did that a lot until one year I got bitten by a lizard. <laughs> and then I was like, that's the, that's the, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, no longer interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, that was kind of that. So every year growing up, you would go to summer solstice. This is something you look forward to. This is how you created bonds and friendships outside of your insular environment in, in Alaska. Well, yeah. So when, when I went to solstice, um, I was always kind of more interested in nature than like other people. <laughs> so, so like I, I would hang out with the kids uh, that, you know, were into like exploring and uh, looking for lizards and snakes and stuff like that. But I didn't ever like going to the lectures or the yoga classes or anything. Like I always just wanted to be out in nature and I'm still like that today. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like in, in Alaska, I did have some friends in Alaska. There was a couple of friends in my neighborhood. And so like, I always grew up with like outside of the, 3HO bubble, I think like that. Like I didn't grow up like a lot of um, other second generation kids uh, in like, you know, big communities with lots of other ashram kids. Like I grew up with, you know, I, I had friends that like my best friend as a kid was Mormon and like mm. he lived down the street from me. And like one time I went to the Mormon tabernacle, tabernacle with them and, you know, saw that whole thing. But so I always grew up with like, you know, just um, different people and, uh, you know, whoever was in the area. So yeah, my first experience really um, getting to know, you know, other other people from the 3HO community besides Solstice was, was MPA. Okay. So then how did that come about? Yeah, so, um, okay. So like I said, I, you know, I was, um, we would always go to the summer solstice event and um, I was always really in, uh, inspired by the MPA nights, the gut cut performances and, um, and the Bhangada and, and all that, all that, like they would have the whole night with those, um, with those demonstrations. And so um, I was actually the one uh, more than my parents, I think I was the one that wanted to, that said that I wanted to travel there because I was always really interested in traveling and um, I was always looking through National Geographic magazines and thinking about like where I could go in the world. And so um, like, I, I remember going by the MPA booth at the bazaar and um, yeah, basically like just stopping by and thinking like, how cool would it be to go to India? Um, Cause my mom would always read me these stories as a kid, the, you know, stories of the Sikh gurus and, you know, it kind of paints India in this like fantastic light. Like, you know, there's all these, uh, little villages everywhere and you know people are and it's just a whole different like kind of exotic there's an exotic nature to it you know when you hear those stories as a kid and so um so anyways i i bugged my parents about going and then eventually like uh we were always like pretty poor growing up and so like you know eventually some family friends said they would they would help contribute one year 
And so and I think it was 2004 or 2005. Um, I don't remember which one was my first year, but uh, what, yeah, like I went to India when I was 13 and um, I remember getting on the plane in Anchorage with um, the Nervera's son, Harai from Alaska. And um, he was, that was his last year there. So that was my, um, yeah, that was my first year. And yeah, we made the journey across and, and then uh, India was a whole different thing than I expected it to be. <laughs> yeah, I want you to pause here because I want to get some real context for this. You grow up in Alaska, you're going to Solstice at 13. You're the one saying, hey, I want to go to India, you know, and I really just want to kind of like marinate in that for, for all of us for a second, because it's really important to understand the several decades prior of of this is what the cool kids do for lack of a better cultural context so of course more kids growing up are going to be like yes i want and i'm not saying that that's bad or good i'm just saying as a community i think there's a theme that's kind of playing out in that well well my parents my kids weren't sent there or i wasn't sent there well of course not because by this time as a culture we've already infused the if you're in the inner cool group and you're following the path and all the things, this is what we do. We send our children to India. And as kids, whether you're five, eight, 10, 13, right? We want in on that. And I remember it from my generation, your couple generations later, when I say generations, just ages, right? Um, so I'm just pointing that out because what I'm hearing with MPA and the MPA nights, I've heard this in a couple of stories and I haven't been around long enough for when MPA was around. Um, I mean, I know it still is, but I just mean when it transitioned to MPA. The fact that there's even MPA nights, right? It's kind of sensationalizing it and a bit of a marketing tool for it. It's like, hey, let's show what the possibility of your child can be in the future. And I think there's value in that. And then there's also not simultaneously, right? We can paint a picture just like there's predatory marketing and good marketing, all of that is kind of infused in what I'm hearing with this, in that our young kids grow up and see these painted pictures of the possibility of life in India, and then comes, okay, what's it really like? Yeah, exactly. And like you said, you know, like my, I remember my mom being really into the idea as long as I, I've been around because, um, you know, she, um, yeah, she really wanted to send me to India because she she wanted to do everything right. Like from my and I remember hearing this on the Renjan story too, uh, on on this podcast that my mom was like that. You know, she she wanted to do everything right. She wanted to raise me as like this saintly man. You know, and like so she was doing everything within her power to do things to the T, just like Yogi Bhajan said. And yeah. so, um, you know, that meant uh, doing bunnies every day and doing meditations for two and a half hours. I mean, I remember doing you know two and a half hours at Korea for like you know, months <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, uh, you know, and then of course the India. Yeah. So like it was, it was definitely something that she wanted for me. Uh, and I remember it being really hard for her, like, um, the first couple of years that I was there, like, you know, just sending me off and, and also like, you know, I remember, um, you know, being, have, definitely being homesick my first year and the first couple of years, definitely being pretty homesick. Yeah, quite a cultural shock. Um, yeah, so anyway, so keep going. You get on the plane, you're with an older, 
um, brother of the Dharma who had been there for a while, but you're much younger than him. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So like, you know, that plane flight, uh, I remember really well because I was really excited about it. And um, I remember meeting up with everyone and I don't remember which, which direction we went that year. We would usually stop in either, uh, at least when I was going to MPA, we would usually stop in either Singapore or, um, or we'd stop in like Frankfurt and go through the Europe way. And uh, anyways, I remember getting to Delhi and it was really like just crowded. Uh, Indira Gandhi International Airport, you know, there was like, there was like water dripping from the ceiling and like on the customs papers and, uh, you know, everyone's shouting and, uh, and then you walk outside and it's just really hot and sticky. And, um, and then we all, you know, loaded up on this big bus and took a 10 hour bus ride to Amritsar. And then we, you know, got settled in the, in the building and, um, you know, I honestly don't remember a lot from that first year of like really specific details about logistics and how things work because yeah, like that was, uh, that was the year that I, I got like really bullied. Like it was like one of the worst years of my life. Um, I, yeah, like, I don't know, I, I guess I could just jump into that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically like I was coming from Alaska, I was a really shy kid. Um, I, I think by nature, I'm just more like a reserved person than, you know, by nature anyways, but, you know, coming to a culture of, you know, kids that mostly know each other, um, that are from different communities that are big in lower, lower 48 in Mexico, whatever, Germany. Um, I was kind of an outcast. So like, I didn't know anyone there, like, and to top that off, I was kind of shy and I didn't know how to deal with people. So, um, so I got made fun of when, you know, I would get really reactional. Like I would, I would get really angry, like when people would, you know, call me names. And so then they wanted to make fun of me more and more. And so, um, yeah, so they made up a nickname for me and they called me like Dave Dumbass. And then they made up a song about me. Um, and they would sing it on the bus after we went to the Golden Temple uh, for 40 days Seva. It, it was for me, it was 40 days of being called names when I got on the bus every time. <laughs> so yeah, I would just like, I remember just being like, kind of dreading it, like, oh boy, here we go got to get on the bus now and hear my name, you know, and hear the song about me. And so, yeah, it kind of made me feel like shit. And uh, after service <laughs> and seva at the Golden Temple, then for 40 days, you became a part of this ritual of the ritual song of making fun of you. And yeah, this song basically. Yeah. And I mean, I will, I want to give credit though. I do want to give credit that, um, the, like everyone that, that called me names has issued me apologies personally by direct message. And, um, you know, it's been really, um, me meaningful to me to, you know, that people cared enough to say something about it because, you know, that's, yeah, that, that made a big difference for me. So, you know, I, I think it's really important for anyone that, you know, that did name calling or, um, you know, anything like that to just say something, you know, even if you don't think it's going to make a difference, because I think it does for, for people. Mm -hmm. It so. absolutely breaks up the scar tissue. Um, and are you saying they reached out and apologized um, since the revelations have come out like this past year in 2020 or even before then, before all this broke open? Yeah, like a few. Um, um, one person issued me an apology years ago, uh, a couple of years ago. And, and, um, like, you know, I think something really significant happened in his life that, that made him think about it. And so, 
you know, I think he felt the, the urge to do that because of that life change. Um, and, and then, yeah, more recently, since the revelations have come out, like everyone else has, has made that apology. So, um, and, and one of them happened because of those calls to the calls that the um, listening calls. Yeah. The listening calls. Mm -hmm. So those are also helpful yeah. thing for people. And I want to just point out that this is just a really important element you're sharing in that when when we have a long when there's a long term culture of abuse, one can be a victim and then also become a predator. And it's a very hard thing to unpack this scar tissue or to start even wanting to examine it when we know we both were a predator and we got preyed on earlier. So if I start to admit this, I have to go here and it's just such a beautiful point in that the fact that there are people that have reached out is meaning they're letting themselves crack open to feel their part. And then below that are more layers that they're opening themselves up to. So I just want to say all of you listening that have been preyed on and became predators and don't even know whether speaking out against some of the people you've hurt would even make a difference. It does. It makes a huge difference both in our own energetics as well as for the person and it starts, it opens up scar tissue and opens up a wound that got tissued over versus actually disinfected properly. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. So yeah, so that, that was kind of my first year in a nutshell was just, you know, basically like, you know, I just remember a lot of like feelings of, you know, like I would, like I would always get the pick, you know, picked on and then I would go and find a corner and just hide from everyone because I didn't, you know, I didn't really want to be there. But also on the other front, like, so like my, my catch 22 with India was always that, you know, India was not like the most fun place to be at times, but also back home, like, you know, my parents were always arguing. And so like there was, they had their own problems, you know, with their marriage and, and all that. And so you know, I, I didn't want to be there full time either because, you know, I, I wanted to be with, with friends and, you know, with people that I felt really close to. And so, you know, from the friendships that I developed at MPA through the years, like I, you know, I was like, well, you know, I mean, I'd rather be in India dealing with that stuff than I would be in Alaska dealing with this stuff. So, so that was, I don't, and I don't know how many other people had those kind of situations, but for me, that was a big decision maker for, for going, keeping going to India was that, you know, I didn't feel like, you know, like my home was really the, you know, the place I wanted to be because I just felt kind of stagnant and like, uh, and I wanted to move forward with life and, you know, and do what I wanted to do. And so, you know, being independent on my own made me feel that way. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And more adventurous kind of out in the world. Right. Yeah. Um, so this first year, it sounds like it was quite traumatic. It was a lot of verbal abuse and kind of public kind of group shaming. Was there also physical abuse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like there there was a culture at that time of like the, you know, the seniors, the older students would come and like they would give us beatings uh, in the classroom. Like it wasn't like, you know, uh, incredibly like, you know, painful physical abuse, but it was like, it was something that I don't think any of us really like to have happen. <laughs> um, and I remember there was also things that happened at that time that um, where, you know, the seniors would come, the older kids would come into the younger kids dorm rooms and they would, uh, and they would, you know, just bother us at night, like shooting us with pellet guns or, you know, 
putting like easy cheese on her on her face and you know just it was just like harassment like that it was it was uh things you know you never felt like you had a a, a safe place because you know your room could get invaded at any time and uh you know the older kids would um basically like kind of enslave you for tasks and so there is kind of like a pecking order that the school operated on that I, th I think it went all the way up to Jagat Guru and um, the staff at that time um, who saw it happen and they didn't take action, you know, because, uh, and I think Jagat Guru specifically was a perpetrator of that because he would, you know, he thought it was funny, like he often thought it was funny and, you know, or at least, you know, he had a smile on his face and he wouldn't say anything about it. So, you know, when it, when it, when an authority figure in an academy like that um, condones that kind of behavior, then of course it's going to continue and it's going to, you know, um, it's just going to marinate and not get better. It's going to become worse because then it becomes institutionalized. So that's what He's I saw. The principal, is that correct? He's the principal of the school. Well, yeah. I mean, I think um, or at that at that time he was the spiritual life director i want to say i don't i don't know exactly what his title was at that time okay um yeah but it was amrit singh as the director of student life and jagat guru as the director of spiritual life and um they kind of worked together to run the school i think okay and from the top down this this hierarchy of of um relations with the ages like the Kind of helped everybody stay in order so to speak is what you think it was it's just like a culture of yeah i mean i think um i don't know i i don't want to speak for them and you know i i know that some some of those people have since you know changed their view of things um but well, let me also say that they were students of the system themselves so they're also yeah. products Right. Just for clarification, they went to school before the school was owned by, quote, our organization. And these are students that kind of moved into these, quote, leadership roles without necessarily the education experience behind them as academics. Yeah. And that's what really what came came across for me, like especially. Yeah. Just thinking about the staff at that time is that I know that, you know, some of them has said that they just felt like they were doing what, you know, what they were directed to do by Yogi Bhajan. And they were doing the best that they could at that. Um, and some of them, like you said, were you know directly students at those other schools in India, and they were just doing uh, what the culture was when they went were there. So yeah, I mean, it really goes back you know pretty pretty far. Like it's not something that just cropped cropped up when I was there. It was obviously an established you know culture, and there was established traditions for you know things that were considered appropriate to do. So, so what did you feel like were your options? So you are. You don't have safe space. You have older students coming in, kind of making you be their slave, so to speak, like do whatever they want. Did you have one person that did that or were there several? And did this go on for many years? Kind of give us a sense of the time period and the experience. Yeah, I mean, the first year was the worst by far. Like that was the worst, um, you know, and there was a group of, of older students that would, that would specifically like pick on me. Um, and I think later on, like a lot of them graduated that first year, a lot of them graduated. And so, um, so then, you know, the, the later years, there was still people that picked on me, but it wasn't like before. Um, but also I think a big, I remember a big turning point for me was when, um, 
I remember this one kid uh, had me do, you know, he was, he was forcing me to do push-ups and like, uh, you know, do basically just, yeah, just do like certain exercise moves and stuff. And I just, um, I got tired of it. So I kicked him in the shin really hard. <laughs> and, and then the, I remember after that, he was like, oh, that was really painful. And he never, like, he never messed with me again. And so I think, I think I started to learn also, you know, I mean, that was the positive benefit too, is like, you know, those are challenges I would have faced uh, in some way in the world, I'm sure. And, you know, I did learn how to deal with people and like push back a little bit. Um, so, you know, once I learned how to stand up for myself more, like, and not just to get really, you know, reactionary and kind of pissed off, like, I think things went better, um, you know, because I, I just knew how to stand up for myself more. But. Now, um, you know, I didn't go to any of the schools in India, so I'm just trying to get a sense of kind of the feeling, the, sense, the sense of what the atmosphere was like. Um, I hear the kind of like teasing and kind of putting cheese in your face and like this kind of stuff. Um, the physical brutality was, was it, was it debilitating for you? Like, were you actually like, I mean, you were a little older. I know some people went at eight, but you're like 13, mm. but you're saying it sounds like you're a quite a small young man at the time. Yeah. Um, well, so oh yeah, just to, just to kind of paint a picture, like, um, well, um, are you asking about the, the, the physical abuse itself or are you asking about yeah. how the school actually operated at that time? A little bit of both, but I want you to stay in your personal experience because it's easy to look back and kind of like overarching kind of, I think this is what was going on, but more from your own personal experience of like, you know, resilience comes out of having to adapt to a situation. So I hear you say, well, anywhere I could have gone through these experiences. And, and while that's true, it's kind of a part of our upbringing as a young person to kind of adult. Um, it's not reactionary to react to abuse. It's abuse. And right. yet our culture, personally, 3HO culture has taught us that's reactionary. Yeah. And that language kind of contracted me a little bit because I appreciate what you're saying. And it is true. Anywhere we go, we might be faced with bullying. We might be faced with situations. But it doesn't make the culture of our own internal silence and abuse right or, or okay because you were able to start standing up for yourself. I want to commend that, but I also want to get more of a feeling of like, what are your options, right? What is your only option then to start learning how to stand up for yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I felt like, um, um, can you just clarify the question again? Yeah. Just more like, well, I know that there's, you know, the bullying, like putting cheese on the face and kind of, yeah, kind of yeah. coming into the classroom and punching you in the arm, stuff like that, which is kind of like older boy bullying. But then there's another levels of bullying. And then there's there's levels where you never where your physical system felt unsafe to be around. And, and like, I don't know, mm -hmm. just more situations where we can get a feeling of right, right, what right. Was the abuse like. like Yeah, that. yeah. Well, so so, you know, like what uh, one thing I remember is like we would go and. Um, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, you know, so um, we would have these evening meditations and I remember after the evening meditations, you know, like um, it would just be like these hallway bullying moments. Like um, you'd be on your way out of the door and like, they'd be like, oh, you know, hey, Dave Dumbass. And like, you know, like punch you, uh, they'd punch me on the spine. Uh, 
punch you in the spine. Yeah, like knuckle punch me in the spine. And yeah, I mean, that definitely hurt. Um, And, uh, you know, and then they'd be like, oh, you're going to like tough it out, you know, like. um, And then another thing I remember is so there's those hallway moments like that where you would just be on your way somewhere and they would kind of like, you know, hijack you. Um, And then there was also the. What does it mean to hijack you? Well, you know, you're going to your you're going to your to your dorm room or you're you're on your way somewhere and then you just get hijacked and like, you know, kind of uh, just abused. So does that mean a group of people are punching you, slapping you, or just yelling? Yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, yeah, I mean like for me it was it was I remember the punching. I remember the punching on the spine and um you know, yeah, and also the slapping because, uh, like, I remember we'd go on these trips, you know, for the winter break. Um, we'd go to, like, I don't remember if it was winter or spring break. I think we went to, yeah, Rishikesh every spring. And um, and then we'd go on these other trips, so, like, places like Manali and um, Sala during winter break. And so um, I remember one trip specifically that um, – we, you know, we were on the bus and coming, I think we were coming back from, I want to say like Manali or something like that. I don't remember exactly which place, but it was, it was somewhere really far away that we took a bus. And so we were on our way back and it was like a, you know, eight hour bus ride. And um, I remember sitting with um, a friend of mine, I think it was, yeah, uh, a friend of mine. I don't know if I want to say names because I don't want to put anyone on the spot, but. Totally up to you. Yeah. But um, anyways, like, I remember that on the way back, um, they were like, oh, you know, like, let's see who cries first. And they would like, you know, slap us like the whole way back, we'd be slapped until we cried. And like, you know, that was really sad because uh, I remember, you know, the guy that I was, that I was sitting next to, like, he didn't, uh, you know, he definitely didn't really, like, yeah, he just wasn't someone that cried a lot. So I remember being like, wow, like, you know, he was actually crying and it was really kind of sad to see because he's not someone that cries easily. So yeah, it would just be like, like all the way back. And it was just a fun game. It was like, it was for them. It was like, it was a fun game where, you know, you're getting like sadistic pleasure out of uh, make, you know, seeing someone else's pain basically. So, so that was the culture, you know, that, uh, you know, and, and it was just, um, and it was, you know, it was just something that that people passed down that, um, you know, I think a lot of them, you know, probably they, they thought it was funny, but they also thought it was like kind of the way that you groom people to like be strong in the world or I don't know, like it was the way that you, um, it, it was also, I think for some people like, you know, just a way of like dealing with things in their own lives there because, you know, they were getting bullied, so they would bully other people and, you know, and also like, I remember even myself, like I, I would, um, I was a squad leader my last year, my was, I don't remember my last year, I think, or no, no, my second to last year there. And um, I remember being, um, you know, picking on some younger kids, I wouldn't, you know, like, like, do that much, but still, you know, I would um, kind of pass on that torch of bullying a bit, because, because, uh, you know, it was kind of like the cool thing to do, like, and I wanted to fit in. So, so yeah, you know, it's just um, the perpetual cycle that, you know, um, that kept on going. Mm-hmm. 
So as you got older, you kind of grew into that too, because it was just um, how you survived the system. Well, our class always liked to, we always liked to say to each other that like we were the class that stopped bullying. And mm. I mean, I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I, I did. I mean, I, it's hard for me to say, I think you'd have to ask younger kids, but from my perception, I think that there was actually a lot less bullying when we were older um, than my first year. But I mean, that's also my perception because of how much I was bullied my first year. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, so it's hard to it's hard to say, but I don't remember anyone doing like that kind of name calling, you know, like on the bus when someone got in. I don't remember anyone doing that like in my later years. So I do think that, you know, it was somewhat calmer, uh, you know, in my, my last couple of years there. But again, you know, I can't, I can't speak for anyone else. I mean, people sure. obviously still had difficult times there. What year did you go over? Um, I think it was 2005. Okay. And then what year did you graduate? 2010. 2010. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So this first year really bad, obviously theme songs are being made about you. Then it, it is also physical brutality. That's pretty regular, obviously emotional, spiritual abuse. What I heard you say is after evening meditation. So mm -hmm. kind of this, this pattern of, you know, meditation infused with the culture of bullying and kind of meditations and yoga being used as like um punishments to that you have to do that you have to do to show your excellence or something yeah well i do remember like um like we would do the standing at attention like that was our punishment for doing bad things like if people would jump the wall and go to town they'd have to stand at attention for so long and you know that's a whole nother conversation because there's you know, I remember standing at attention because the principal, um, it was a lady from the US that year, this was like the academic principal. And um, she, uh, she couldn't find her laptop. And so it was like a really hot day. It was like over 100 degrees. And we had to stand at attention the whole school day almost, um, like in sweltering heat, like because she couldn't find her laptop. And then she found her laptop and it turns out the like the lady who was cleaning that day moved her laptop and she thought that someone stole it. And it's like, we had to all stand at attention the whole day because the principal, you know, thought that someone stole her laptop when in fact they didn't. And it's like, that kind of punishment is just not, you know, it's obviously someone that doesn't know much about schooling, um, you know, um, because that that's not something that, an entire school should have to endure, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it's something that you deal with someone one-on-one -on -one or you investigate more. Um, and I remember a lot of things like that happening, like um, where, you know, people would, yeah, they would, they would think that students were doing things and then they would kind of put the blame on everyone. So there is kind of that, that kind of, you know, um, that kind of behavior where you know it's like it's like someone messed up so we're all gonna have to pay for it mm -hmm. and that was both from staff and, and other students i think because i remember when we were all in the squads there and and we would do the marching drills and you know someone would screw up so we'd all have to do push-ups it's like it's like the military way of doing things you know it's i think that kind of culture exists in the military too 
It sounds like when MPA got formed, it went more that military route. There was that gap of from Guru Ramdas, right, from GNFC, then it went Guru Ramdas Academy, and Nimi was in there, right, the military academy. And then when MPA started, it kind of seems like it adopted a real military hierarchical model, which makes sense for where YB comes from, right? Yeah, exactly. And and there was, um, I, I do remember uh, some people coming to the school that were from that military culture. Like I remember the the guy who founded a call security um, came there and he would do like marching drills with us and he'd be kind of tough like that. Um, and there was another guy too. I don't remember his name, but I remember this, this one guy who was actually in the Marines, I want to say, um, or the army, you know, he, he came one time and he made us do army crawls across the soccer field at like 6am. Um, and you know, that, that was like, I think that was the remnants of that like earlier culture that was very military focused. Mm. Um, and I think when I was there, like that was kind of like phasing out a bit because, you know, Jagat Guru was getting older and, um, a lot of those people that were really hardcore military had already left, I think, mm. but yeah, there was still some of that there for sure. Mm. Now, when you went to India in 2005 ish, did you not come home for five years or did you return at the end of each year? Yeah, so I returned every year, and I know that yeah, some people that went there earlier they actually stayed over the summers. I think, um, but that yeah, our our um, our class, you know, we from the time that I went there onwards, like uh, we we always came home. But most yeah, no one went home during the winter for winter break. But um, the summer yeah. everyone did. Yeah. So. Um, the, the stories where everyone stayed, that was earlier. And was that more financial that people couldn't afford to come back and forth? And, and, or so no longer did families stay? Like, did that change over time is what you're saying? That later on in MPA, all the students left, all the students went back versus some staying because they couldn't afford to come back? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard that. I've definitely heard some, some people that, uh, some people that I knew there uh, saying that, you know, they, their parents couldn't afford to send them back during the summer before. But yeah, like by the time that I went, we always went home during the summers. Okay. That was just a part of how the program worked. And then yeah. you had mentioned earlier that your parents didn't necessarily have the finances to send you to school in India, which I can relate to a lot of other, you know, kids never went to school in India because their parents didn't have the resources. Um, you, you had mentioned a fam, uh, some neighbor friends, that had offered to help scholarship you. And did that just continue or did your parents just find other ways to keep sending you each year? Yeah, no, that continued. Um, I, I think that, you know, possibly one or two of those years they did pay out of their pocket, um, which was a big deal because my dad ran a, clean, a house cleaning business in Anchorage. Like he didn't, you know, have a retirement or make a lot of money from that, but mm -hmm. they, you know, they did really believe that it was the right thing to do. So they did everything possible to like make that happen. Um, but yeah, like it definitely was mostly the biggest reason I went was because, you know, like we had family friends that would pay for the, um, at least part of the schooling and, and then also the plane ticket sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I'm contexting this because this is a special thing. I mean, it's quite a privilege to be able to know that another family is helping to sponsor this possibility to happen for me. And yeah. in the context of that, it's really hard to be like, well, should I just discard this and say, I don't like it, right? We're trying to reconcile in our own soul a bit, at least what I'm hearing you say, like, 
God, this is bad, but back home it's bad and I should feel lucky that this is happening and just kind of all the ways that we try to figure out how to deal with our circumstances when it's a painful place. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So tell us more about um, what your years or kind of what else, what else you want us to know about your time there, about your development, that first year quite bad. And then as you develop your time there, what else do you want us to hear? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much, there's so much I can say about, you know, being in India and, 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 and just, um, like I said, for me, it's, it's a catch 22 because, um, you know, I do have good memories from India, but also there's, you know, there's the aspects of India that, that were just not healthy, you know, and that, um, it was, you know, it was, it was in a way kind of like a, a system that, that was not good. I, but, you know, I, I also feel that, you know, the thing is also that, if I went to school, like I, sometimes I think about like, well, what if I went to school in like Alaska, you know, and, you know, public school in Alaska was, was also not a very good place to be. So that's why, that's why I also feel like, you know, it's a catch 22 because it's like, yeah, if I went to school in Alaska there, you know, I would not have had the cultural appreciation that I do having gone to school in India. And that for me is a really big deal and it's helped me a lot in my life. Um, so you know, I felt like that part of, of the experience was really good, you know, because it encouraged me to travel more, you know, during college and, and uh, keep doing things that, you know, like learning, learning about other cultures and other ways of doing things. But also, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish the, the bullying or the, you know, basically domestic violence, you know, on, on anyone, like, uh, it's not a system that that is good. So, yeah, I mean, I struggle with it, you know, because I think that I think that, you know, kids should have experiences abroad, you know, and, and I think that it's it's a healthy thing because like as a culture in the United States, we're um, not the most like worldly culture. We, we think that we're the best and we um, think that we're the ones that are right and we like to dominate the world. And, you know, being an American, I see that in my, you know, I'm, see that my dad like you know he's he's been an american citizen his whole life and he's um been out of the country like once or twice you know and like it's just i i see this like attitude of like we're the best you know america's the best and like you know i i i really like to be a world citizen i like to be you know out in the world learning and and like appreciating other cultures and and learning about you know the world um so so yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the school, the school in India, you know, it's really unfortunate that it turned out that way because I think it could have been a much better thing, you know, if it were run correctly, but, but now it is what it is. And that's, you know, that's, that's the situation we're in. <laughs> well, I think now it's being exposed to the full totality of it. Yeah. The the full range of, of experiences versus just the picture that's painted. Um, which, you know, I want to say when I was at the European Yoga Festival and I saw the MPA presentations, I was thoroughly impressed beyond like, wow, you know, um, 
so I think what you're bringing up is a very important point that speaking to the trauma, the domestic violence, the brutality of something doesn't take away the richness or the good qualities that that experience might have offered us to. And I yeah. think one of the hardest things that we have to deal with as a community, as well as individuals, that speaking to the pain and the trauma and the abuse of my experience doesn't take away the fact that there were also really excellent, amazing parts of it simultaneously. Yeah, and and I kind of relate to like also to Narendra's story in that way too. Just as 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 far as being part of like the three HO community growing up, because like in some ways I feel like um, you know being part of that community, you know, well I don't know how much of it was part of the community and how much of it was part of how much of it was because of having parents that cared about me, but um, you know I felt like they really tried to instill you know values in me that 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 were good and um they wanted me to be you know an honest person and you know do good things in the world and and because of that you know i was kind of i went off in the world and and you know, i try and do good things in general um but you know yeah i mean like there's there's definitely a balance because on the other side of things we see like rama and you know the whole that whole movement which is really toxic and you know just the the gaslighting right like the you know I, I just i see that yoga teacher mentality of like you know this is the right way this is the it's just like when you go to like a, yeah right it's just like when you go to like an evangelical ceremony like an evangelical church like because i did go to one of those and it's like you know i remember the pastor being like jesus is you know, the best Krishna and, and Buddha and all these guys are nothing. And, you know, it's, it's the same mentality, right? Like it's, it's like, this is the way, but like really what we should be doing is um, just, you know, facilitating good space for people and, and just, um, you know, being open, like the golden temple has four doors, right? Like we're supposed to be uh, welcoming to everyone and, and, you know, appreciating what everyone brings to the table not just saying what we think is right. And I see a lot, I saw a lot of that happening, you know, at Solstice throughout the years and, and at MPA and, and um, you know, like personally, I feel like, you know, I'm like, I, I relate a lot with Sikhism in some ways, but I also um, think it's important to forge your own path in life and, uh, and just like, you know, learn about things authentically. So I guess I'm kind of branching off here from India, um, but I, I just wanted to say like, you know, like, yeah, I mean, what I, one of the things that I saw, um, you know, throughout growing up and going to solstice and all this stuff was that um, there's also a huge lack of critical thinking in the 3HO community. And that's one of the biggest downfalls of the community, I think, is that, you know, people really want, they're attracted to the community because they want to be good people and they want to do good things. But um, without having that ability to critically analyze and just like dialogue and, and think about things and just like take them apart and look and see like what's going on, um, you know, you can get trapped in the dogma, like you get trapped in the, uh, the kind of, you know, the, the shaming and the cultural, the cultural slash, you know, religious, spiritual superiority 
of, of those organizations like Rama and like these other ones that, you know, they just don't, um, they don't respect other ways of doing things. And so, so I don't know, I think, I think that's the balance to be had, you know, is people need to learn those skills and, um, and apply them. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that, you know, like that's why I went, I went to college and I took philosophy and, you know, I, at the time I, I just, I thought it was like really cool because it's not something I, I think it's because it's saying I didn't really, you know, grew up with seeing in the 3HO community. It was like, I didn't see the, the freedom of like, you know, like looking at a way of um, doing things and being like, okay, is this like, is this actually, does this actually make sense? <laughs> you know, or like, does this, is this benefiting everyone truly? Uh, and, you know, doing that kind of study, like helped me figure that out a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you make a really great point too around, you know, on one end, it's like real open, it's inclusive, we accept and love everyone. And yet then there's actually an air of, of spiritual superiority. But if you cut your hair, or you don't wear a turban, or it doesn't look like this, or da, 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 da. as a culture, it was kind of like, oh, you're shunned, and you're doing that wrong. And what an interesting thing, like, oh, we're, we're all inclusive, this practice and teachings are for everyone, it's going to change humanity. And yet, if you don't do it like this, you're not among the elite spiritual warriors. And that's not the essence of, of why so many people think they're getting involved in the community. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like there's this pyramid where like, you have to like, you know, crawl to the top and like claim victory, but that's not, that's not, that shouldn't be the goal. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it should just be about, you know, being, you know, being a community and, and, um, supporting each other on, you know, whatever your journey is, right? Like, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's important to have those, you know, those skills, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you left India, um, I'm guessing you were still practicing full on in, in Sikh Dharma and, and you leave India and you come back. Do you want to give us a sense of like anything left in India and then that transition back here? Or... Sure. Yeah. So, so like my journey since, since MPA has been interesting because, you know, I, I actually, you know, I, okay. So when I, when I left India, I, I applied my last year there, I was applying for like colleges and, you know, I, I really did not want to go back to Alaska and like live with my parents. So I was doing everything possible to make sure that didn't happen. So <laughs> so I, um, I took my SATs. Uh, I remember the first time I took them, you know, in India, I, I think I had like a fever <laughs> and I still went and tried to do it. And like, I got a really bad score. So I had to redo it. Um, and, uh, then it was the next time I, I did fine. So I, um, but the college search on its own was a, was a trip in India. I mean, like, you know, I remember there was a lady there that was supposed to be like my college advisor and she left like halfway through the year. So like, I didn't have a college advisor. I had to do it all on my own. And I looked through the, you know, the college board website and I uh, applied to like a, a, a bunch of different colleges. Um, and I knew I wanted to go to like a small college that was like liberal arts. So anyways, I ended up going to a college in Ohio um, and it was called the College of Worcester. And it was a super cool college. I had a great time there, um, but um, yeah, like, so I actually went to college, like, in Ohio, right after I graduated. So I had the summer in Alaska, you know, the fall time, um, my dad and my uncle drove from Indiana to Ohio to drop me off there. And 
then they're like, okay, see you later. And my, that was the last time my dad showed up at a college for like four years. <laughs> um, wow. And so, so, you yeah, know, like I, I was still in that kind of like boarding school atmosphere with like everyone living together at the college and um, a lot of international students. Um, but yeah, to make a long story short, you know, I, I felt like, um, you know, I was like coming into the college, I was like this kind of like lost child from India with like a, you know, white kid with a turban on. <laughs> so anyways, of course, uh, I connected right, right away with the international kids. And uh, I ended up with all these like Indian friends and Nepal Nepali friends. And so anyways, um, they just thought it was like a trip that I was like wearing a turban, and, you know, white. <laughs> so, so anyways, like, I mean, that's why I say it's like hip strength too, because like I made all these great friends from college also because I, you know, I was wearing a turban and, and I, had those experiences so um I just so anyways really important point you're bringing up because a part of what has kept me keeping our community in this light of um, goodness was the privilege of the international perspective on the world and exactly. i call it a privilege because i feel like it's very much what has anchored me of, of finding the good of, of my life experience was the international perspective that I know a lot of my American friends just don't have. They don't have a perspective on the world. I'm so a, a, in value of that in my experience and in my life over the years, I've been able to like look more and more at the trauma without getting hijacked with that benefit. But sorry to... to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I, totally, I totally relate. And yeah, like that, you know, I remember my first year in, in college was like, you know, my friends were all getting wasted. And I was just like, I was this kid from India. And I was just like, I was always like a good kid, you know, so like, I was like, oh, all my friends are getting wasted. So I guess I have to take care of them. So I was just like, you know, my friend would come like blacked out to me in the middle of the night at, at college and, you know, whatever, I'd have to deal with them. But but, you know, uh, and, you know, I started like going to some parties and, you know, drinking some beer and stuff. And, you know, I just realized that life wasn't for me either. <laughs> so, um, so I, yeah, like I came into the college feeling like I wanted to like definitely forge my own path. And I felt like, you know, I was wearing a turban, but I also felt like um, conflicted about my identity because I was like, you know, I didn't really fit in in India and I didn't really fit in in Alaska. So like, who was I? And like, what was I doing? And what was important to me? Like, how did I want to like create my life? So, um, so I remember, yeah, like, uh, I, I just remember like going, you know, going to parties and, you know, but also like having, you know, a lot of friends that first year. And, um, and I think as my, my journey through college progressed, I kind of found my place. Like I found that, like, I just like to, you know, have friends from different groups and, you know, get to know them and hang out with them. And um, and I, I didn't really practice much Kundalini yoga, actually. I didn't really practice much yoga coming out of um, India. Um, and part of that was because I, I never was really like that much into physical activity, like in India. I was more of like a reader and like someone that likes to analyze things and take things apart. Um, but coming into college you know I would I remember I would do like meditations and I would, like my friends would always be like oh can you teach me some yoga you know like uh, I want to learn some like meditation breathing exercises so so I remember like you know coaching my friends through some of that stuff sometimes um and um I so I actually like my senior thesis in, in college was uh, as a philosophy major was an east-west comparative study and mm. I was looking at the Bhagavad Gita and Stoicism and I was trying to see like if they were like related because um 
I think it was a way of me like working through in my in my head like who, what my what my identity was because I felt like I, I was kind of like a Western person, but I was also kind of like you know an Eastern person from like being in India and all that. And so I was trying to like grapple with that sense of identity, and that was the easiest way for me to do it was to make it a project as part of college. And um, and my advisor didn't really know how to handle the project because he wasn't really a Indian philosopher. He was like, or he wasn't really familiar with Indian philosophy that much. So, you know, I ended up just kind of doing it on my own. But, um, but yeah, I mean, so when I was doing my project, I started doing, you know, Kundalini yoga again. And honestly, I felt like better because I was doing it. And, uh, and I felt like I was, you know, getting some exercise and, and uh, I was also starting to work out too. So I, I started like, creating my exercise routine. Um, but, um, and then I, I would invite my friends to do it and they liked it. So yeah, like, you know, honestly, I, I felt like pretty healthy at that point in my life. Um, but um, yeah, and so so after college, you know, I, I, uh, I basically just ended up doing like one, like one Korea that I really liked. Um, for a long time and I would just do it. And I, but I always felt kind of, the thing was with Kundalini yoga is I always felt kind of weird about the structure of it because I think like, I like the yoga, the exercise of yoga like yoga postures and like you feel like you're, you're moving with your body, but I didn't like the structure of like Kundalini yoga and how it, how it's put together. Like there's a lot of mantras and there's a lot of things you're supposed to do. And, and it's like, it's very like rigid and like for me I, I felt like I guess I felt like I, I always wanted to like take the best from the yoga and then just kind of make it my own right like so I like the breathing like the breathing is really great and it makes me feel good um, and I like the po you know some of the postures and um, and you know just the forms of movement that that come with that but um, yeah, and that's something I still grapple with to this day because then after the prim code book came out, I'm like, well, that really, that really, you know, is uh, a clear sentiment that you know this yoga is definitely something that's too rigid because it's something that you know Yogi Bhajan, you know, is <laughs> probably not even you know first of all his yoga like he it's not probably, right, not his. He didn't make anything. He just took yeah. lots of things from lots of sources and called it his own. Right, exactly. Yeah, made and, up a and, narrative of where he had come from and the story of how he had learned all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And and so you know, it kind of left me, you know, feeling really conflicted about you know yoga, especially after that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, to this day, like I'm still you know trying to figure out that part of things because because I I really do feel like you know yoga is something that is can be beneficial for people, but also you know the way that it's presented like I don't want to get up on stage and tell people kundalini yoga is this thing that yogi bhajan created and you know and uh it has this kind of certain history and like I don't know I'm not a like yoga scholar but I can definitely say that like you know uh people weren't over in India chanting the sunshine song after <laughs> after their yoga sets you know and and, and just a lot of the mantras. So I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to say too much about that because I'm not really a yoga scholar, but, um, but well, yeah. What I hear you saying is that in college, 
you were starting to grapple with your identity. On one end, it's kind of like, well, I'm not Indian and these parts of the culture I'm not so sure about. And then yet I'm getting kind of like looked at as being like holy and like I know something special and maybe I have something to teach. And there's a lot that comes with that. Like I, I know that as I started shedding the external identity, there was something to be said for like, oh, if I wore a turban publicly versus not a turban, the way people respond to me changed. And as popularity of spiritual things over the last decade in the, you know, in the 2000s and 2010s, that was a great thing. We weren't ostracized. It was like, oh, wow, you're a Western person with a turban and you grew up with yoga. Oh, and, and there was a sense of kind of inflation inside of me taking place. Like, oh, maybe where I come from is really good. But then there's also confusing parts of that because it is traced back into hypocrisy and things that were cultural misappropriated and things that I didn't know where to house at the same time I was proud. Like, but I got a lot of experiences and I had an international perspective. So it's like, I, I feel that sense of you searching for your identity. And on one end, it's like, let me try drinking. No, that didn't feel very good. Let me try yoga. Well, that kind of makes me feel good, but I'm still confused about it. And then when in March, 2020, it all breaks open. Now it starts to validate some of your own internal confusion. Yeah, for sure. And and like, I just want to say like, you know, one of the things that I was also working through coming out of college was I, I ended up um, like right after college, I started working for the National Park Service in Alaska. And so I was doing like video production, going out to all these remote communities in Alaska and like, you know, flying on small planes and helicopters and all this stuff like filming and, and photographing and meeting people and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, that was the time where I really started like wondering about my turban too, because like, you know, for me, like, and I think everyone, you know, is different. And I, I definitely respect Sikhism as a tradition. Um, but I also feel like for me, like, you know, wearing a turban was like, really kind of annoying for me, because I would like, it just didn't, it didn't work. Like, you know, like, every time I'd wear a turban, like, um, you know, when I was playing sports, it would fall off when I'm hiking, it would fall off. <laughs> like, you know, I would have to be like, um, flying in a helicopter and, you know, put on my flight helmet. And like, you can't put on a flight helmet, like with a turban on, like mm -hmm. it just doesn't work. And, you know, once you're in the back country for like 10 days, your turban is not going to work either. Like, at least from my experience. So that's why I stopped like really wearing a turban because, you know, I just didn't feel like it was working for my way of life. I just felt like, you know, I mean, and I know it works for, for some people and, and that's, that's totally cool. But yeah, for me, like, yeah, I just felt like that was, you know, that was one of those things where, you know, just um, along with the fact that, you know, I'm not really like, I don't do a lot of Sikh things. So I don't want to, you know, I don't really want to yeah, appropriate that culture without, you know, yeah. doing what, what a Sikh is supposed to do. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you started grappling with these things way earlier than all the revelations came out. You're kind of ch checking in with your own identity along the way and figuring out who am I in the in this larger society? Who do I want to be? What feels good to me? Yeah. So fast forward many years, because this is probably like 2012, 13, 14, 15, I'm guessing, mm -hmm. because that's college years for you. And then going right into the work world. And then bring us through that time into like when you found out about Premka's book. Was this stuff new for you? Had you already kind of unpacked some of that stuff? Yeah. So like, I mean, um, 
so I knew that there was things going on in, in the in, in the world of 3HO because I saw, I was always skeptical about Hari Jiwan and Rama. Like I would always see them at Solstice and I was like, these guys just seem like they're, they're like, they're really like sappy with their words. And, um, and it was just really like gross. It made me feel, it made my skin kind of crawl. <laughs> they would be at um, Solstice? Yeah, yeah, right, at you Solstice. Wanna, you wanna drug it and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just the way that people right. talked about, people, the way that people talked about them too, like, you know, I just remember coming to winter solstice one year and, you know, this one guy is like, oh, you know, like, how do you, how do you do is in now? Like, he's, you know, he's the guy to follow. And it was like, like, that's kind of just, that's like the kind of thing you hear when you're walking into like a cult, you know, a cult worship group or something. So, so anyways, um, but uh, um, can you, can you say the question again? Sorry. Um. Uh, we were talking about. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Leading up to yeah, leading up to now, like on the Primco group. Yeah, but, how you found so, out about that? Yeah, so you know, I was actually, I was definitely unaware that um, about you know the Yogi Bhajan part of things. I did not know about that. I didn't know about Primca, um, and part of that is just because I was in Alaska doing my own thing, you know, and I, I didn't really interface that much with people from. Uh, 3HO, you know, so, but, but I did know about, um, you know, some, there was some fishy stuff that happened, like, uh, throughout, uh, even my time in India, like, I remember one time I, a friend of mine found a hard drive, um, and he was looking through it for, like, yoga manuals or something, and he came across, uh, he came across, like, a picture of, of, like, a Skype conversation, and it was a screenshot of, um, uh, what's his name? The guy that does Satnam Rasayan. Guru Dave Singh? Yeah, Guru Dave Singh. It was a screenshot of Guru Dave Singh, like topless, with like a woman that was also topless in like the lower, in the lower screen. And so oh. um, I remember like he told me about that and, and I was like, you know, we were like, man, like that's kind of weird, you know? And um, I think that was one of the first things that really got me kind of skeptical about things, you know, the yeah. way that things were happening in 3HO. Um, and, but that was early on, you know, and, you know, I kind of, um, it kind of set the tone for it, but um, yeah, then uh, later on, you know, like I said, I, I would go to solstice events, um, you know, I went to a solstice event, like my second to last year of college. And then, um, you know, later on with my parents, uh, even after college. And yeah, I just, I never really knew about, um, about, you know, the Yogi Bhajan thing or anything like that. Um, but yeah, then the Primka book came out, um, was it last year or the year before? It was like last. Yep, yeah, January, 2020. Right. right, cause it was like, right. It was coupled with the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. When all so, of it came out, pandemic came out. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, so then the book came out and um, I remember actually, um, right before that, I was visiting with a friend who is a lawyer for 3HO in Anchorage, um, Amritkar, and, uh, you know, she mentioned that at a Khalsa council meeting, there is a bunch of stuff that happened, and I was like, huh, I wonder what kind of stuff that was, you know, so I had like a little, you know, sneak peek that there was something going on, but yeah, then the Primka book came out, and um, I didn't actually read the book yet, the whole thing, um, but my fiance did, and she told me about it. And uh, and then I read the an olive branch report, 
Um, and yeah, I mean, um, it honestly didn't really surprise me that much because I was, I think I was at the point at that, at that point, I had thought about it enough. I had given it enough thought that, um, along with my experiences in India being bullied and like seeing how, you know, Jagaguru and these guys behaved, like, I just, I really honestly was not surprised. I, I was kind of like, well, yeah, like, you know, this kind of fits with the narrative and, you know, it also like, you know, the Bikram documentary hadn't come out not so long ago either. Um, you know, I remember watching that even like last year, I think, or no, two years ago, I watched that. And um, yeah, so like, you know, just, it's just, you know, one of those, one of those things that came out that, yeah, like kind of solidified how I feel about, about things. And, and then in the beginning of, of this whole situation, um, I joined the the Primka group on Facebook and I joined the, the age Facebook group. Right. Right. And I joined the, the Yogi Bhajan legacy group too, because I wanted to see the different perspectives and how people were dialoguing and man, like the Yogi Bhajan legacy group was a trip. Like I, I got kicked out of that group for, um, asking, um, I basically just pushed back against someone's thought very gently. Like I'm, you know, I'm not like a super aggressive person, but I just like questioned what they said. And like, I just asked a question, like, you know, using the Socratic method, which is like how you get, you know, people to think for themselves. And they just went like crazy. They went crazy. Like they just blew up and the admin Harpal, like, uh, you know, suspended me from posting. And then he called me up uh, on my phone. He wanted to talk by phone. So I talked to him and like, you know, he seemed like not that like there wasn't like a lot of like missteps in his communication. So it, he seemed like a somewhat normal person um, on the phone. But then after the phone conversation, then he like called me all these names on, on instant messenger. And like, he like, he was writing in like all caps. And like, I mean, the guy is psychotic. Like <laughs> he has problems. So, uh, so anyways, like I, you know, I took a lot of action about that. And I, I think I posted on the Prim Kid group about it and uh, the second gen group. And I also told, you know, the 3HO lawyer that I know about it because, you know, that was, um, but that also, you know, that also kind of solidified even more the, you know, the way I feel about the mentality is like, you know, like if you're in that much of denial that something is not right, then, um, you know, it's like, it, it, it's it's kind of a red flag that there's you know there's some things that people have to work through in this community and um, mm -hmm. you know I, I really um, yeah I, I really want to acknowledge like everyone that's you know actually taken time to to read the olive branch report and hear the stories from survivors and you know it's just to me it's kind of like like why would someone take the time to like to write a story or, or tell their story uh, with a lot of emotion on a call in front of a bunch of other people with, while, while lying about it. Like there's, there's too much evidence that these things happened um, to, to deny it. I mean, it's just, it's not healthy for people to, you know, to be denying these things. But yeah, I mean, anyways, I mean, yeah, I, I guess, that's kind of how I feel now is like, I just, I feel like we're, you know, as a community, obviously everything is kind of in limbo. And for me personally, like, 
I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to do what makes my body feel healthy, but I'm not going to, you know, do Kundalini yoga as Tapa Yogi Bhajan. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to forge my own way, just like I've been doing my whole life. <laughs> so. Yeah, beautiful. <clears throat> I want to commend you for drawing your line in sand. This Kundalini yoga is taught by Yogi Bhajan stuff, copyright. And um, I also want listeners to know that what Dave Dudham is speaking of in terms of these different groups is when all of this came out in 2020, um, a beyond the, uh, it was called White Bird in the Golden Cage, Premka's book. And so a Facebook group was created to support a place for conversation and expression around what that book was about and, and people's response to it. And it quickly grew to like 5,000 members. And when it hit a peak of processing, a lot of people started sharing their stories and beast stories. It was our own little Me Too movement. That group has morphed into a group called Beyond the Cage, right? So it's moving forward in, in, in our processing. And there's other groups that are, are moving forward in the conversation about Kundalini Yoga and other groups moving forward in the conversation of 3HO. This group is specifically to support survivors and a conversation around that. And so anyways, just to give some perspective. Um, I think you just brought up a lot of stuff in there, Dave Dedham, in people's responses, reactions, even the choice to read the book or not. I found a lot of first generation people just jump right to I support survivors, but didn't want to touch that book. And I found that so fascinating because I think it goes back to a really old narrative about Premka that got indoctrinated in our parents' generation in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm still, you know, working with my parents on their, you know, ways of doing things because, you know, as long as I've been around, like my mom is always, you know, she's always really hard on herself and she wants to do things the right way. And so even to this day, she's still saying, I want to wake, I got to wake up for sadhana tomorrow at 6 a.m., 4, 4 a.m. in the morning, you know, it's like, no, you don't, you can just like do something for yourself in the morning that makes you feel good, but it doesn't have to be, you know, like Aquarian sadhana and uh, it can be whatever you want it to be. Like sadhana just means a spiritual practice. So you can, you can make anything spiritual. You can be running and it can be spiritual if you're listening to the birds chirping around you. If you're listening to the wind whistling through the trees, you know, um, you can go on a morning swim and, and, or you can go on an evening swim, you know, it can be your, like that. I think that's the important thing is just taking time to like, connect with the world around you and to, to be connected. That's what it's all about. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, are your parents paying attention if they read the AOB report? Are they listening? Yeah. So, so, um, my, my, my dad took the time to actually read the report and he's, um, he's been really diligent with looking through all the materials and he's, you know, he's definitely in agreement that, um, that Yogi Bhajan, you know, committed a lot of atrocities. Um, and I think that, you know, he's at the point now where he's kind of like, um, yeah, he, I think that he's working through, um, 
kind of like probably on an identity crisis with it because, you know, it's like everything that he's um, pr practiced and learned over these years, you know, uh, is kind of coming crashing down. So um, I think he's trying to find ways to work with that. And like, he's like, well, you know, I, if Yogi Bhajan can just make up a Kriya, so can I. <laughs> so, you know, he's kind of, he's learning how to, you know, experiment and like um, make it his own, which is, I think, really awesome. And I'm, I'm glad he's in that position. My mom is um, having more of a difficulty, I think, because she felt like she was taken in by the community when she joined. And for her, it's always been um, really important to be like connected with the community. And in order for her to feel connected, like she has to do things right. Um, and so, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of like her touchstone. So like, you know, like I'm, I, I try to be like really um, gentle with her because, you know, she, she's a, kind of like a, um, what's the word? You know, she's a, she's a kind of fragile soul. So, so I, I, you know, like my parents are older, they're like seven years old. So, um, your parents, I, I, yeah, yeah. And are they both still teaching Kundalini yoga? Um, no, I mean, they, um, they, they do yoga workshops sometimes, but they don't teach like regular classes. Um, so, so I've been, I've been trying to just like work with my mom. Like when I hear her bring things up, I just try and, you know, you know, t just, I just try and get her to think for herself more um, instead of like with the group think. Um, but That's like I said, you know, think for yourself versus the group thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, you know, I try and get her to do like empowering things like working out and stuff like that, because, you know, she's a, she's a really airy person. <laughs> so like, it's helpful for her to have like grounding practices, like, you know, working out and with her feet on the ground. So, um, so that's what I, I try and do with my parents. I, I don't, you know, I don't go too hard on them because, you know, I, I just, I, I don't think it's worth it for, for me and for my situation with my parents. But I know that some people have different relationship with their parents, which is totally cool, you know, if, if your parents um, are more, you know, willing to take bigger steps. But yeah, I just try and do it bit by bit. The AOB report, for those of you that don't know, is an olive branch report in which um, stories of direct abuse from Yogi Bhajan to women were shared and um, accumulated in a report done by the olive branch. And so that's what we're referring to as we speak to that. If you haven't read it, we encourage you to, because it really did illuminate um, a, a, a pattern, a pattern of abuse and that these women didn't necessarily talk to each other. They all reported harm directly. And the fact that their stories really kind of told the same story in, you know, anywhere from six to 30 different bodies. Um, really, if anyone who reads it will start to have an identity crisis <laughs> from our community. If you're not reading it, it's a lot easier to stay in the party line group think because it's not people from your own community sharing a, sharing a very sadistic experience of mutilation and long ongoing psychological and sexual and physical abuse. I want to commend you for coming on today and for sharing. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Sean, for hosting these podcasts. I think that you've shared a lot of really important um, 
perspectives in terms of the the confusingness of it all. You know, one can know one holds trauma like yourself and yet still be reconciling, but there was good in it. And then somebody else can actually not even know they had trauma. They put everything into a context of a beautiful white box with a beautiful white bow. And now that's being shattered open. And that's a different level of unraveling. And it sounds like you've unraveled in stages because you've been questioning your own identity for some time. And this kind of like nail in the coffin, like, yeah, this makes sense when all this went down. And it doesn't mean that your identity isn't any less confusing to deal with. It's just more in plain sight than it's ever been. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. What was it like for you to witness your brothers and sisters that you went to school with speak out for the first time? Yeah, I mean, it was it was really eye opening, actually, because um, I I didn't honestly really realize like how much difficulties other people were having at that school. Um, I felt like, you know, like I knew I had a bad experience, you know, um, from the time I went there to the time I left. I knew that a few of my close friends had some bad experiences, but just to hear the emotion, the raw emotion and, and the, you know, the feeling that people had about, you know, the way that, the way that they felt in those moments, it really brought it home for me. Like, and I, I felt like I, yeah, I just had a lot of compassion, you know, I, I felt a lot of compassion for, um, for my classmates and, and the older kids too, you know, the kids that, that bullied me. Um, you know, I think that we're all in it together and, you know, um, it's really kind of a beautiful thing that we were all, we all came together to have those conversations and just facilitate space for each other to listen and to share. And um, I hope that we can keep doing that. You know, I, I hope we can keep doing that and, you know, be, be vulnerable and, and um, share with each other because that's what brings authenticity and, and to, you know, to our community. And, um, and I hope for, for our community as a whole that like, you know, something good comes out of it, that we, you know, stay connected in a way that, that brings goodness to the world in some other, you know, by, by revealing uh, truths and, and falsehoods and, um, and, you know, just, um, you know, yeah, just helping others. So. Yeah, by having our story told we're helping someone in the future that may be exposed to kundalini yoga or 3ho or whatever and and want to be critically thinking want to getting a bigger perspective and our stories at this juncture of their experience might make all the difference from them not just getting the good marketing of our organizations or our schools or our companies but also get the full range of perspective you know get all the all the reviews not just the light wash painted ones of of amazing knowledge so to speak yeah exactly right so yeah as we continue to tell these stories you know hopefully that's what comes of it yeah i know when i was listening to some of the listening stories i was astounded i was astounded by the levels of um emotional repression that had taken place 
yeah. and the culture of silence that people could be roommates for years and not know each other's abuse story. Yeah. Um, that some kids had been molested by staff, other kids had been molested by each other. Um, physical beatings, obviously the major physical brutality, and that it didn't start with MPA. You know, it was a culture that had breeded long before that, and it morphed into that when that became kind of like our our grounds, our school. But prior to that, the school that started in the eighties and the nineties, like all these these abuses, you know the. The, the abuse of, of black kids that were in our community in the early years of India and in the 80s and, and just all sorts of other level of abuse. If you go for 30, 40 years as a community not talking about it and those kids just kind of disappear out of our community and move on, then the next generation learns, oh yeah, it's not safe to talk about it. Yep, it's yeah. not safe to talk about it. Our parents don't wanna hear about it. Our teachers don't wanna hear about it. We definitely aren't safe to talk to each other. And this actually creates a physiological response in us over time. And so it's why uncomfortable conversations are uncomfortable because they're actually good conversations, but they're uncomfortable because our own nervous system isn't comfortable speaking about things that could ripple somebody else's life, confuse somebody else's identity. We don't wanna mess somebody else's world up by sharing our story. And that that's also a part of the predatory history. Yeah. They silent at all costs, because if you speak out, it'll mess somebody else's life up. Right, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad that this, this culture is becoming more prevalent of like, just um, allowing people to speak up and share, um, you know, hopefully this encourages more people to be open and maybe some people that are not open right now will you know start to open themselves up when they start to see like more and more people um opening up themselves because I, I know a lot of these people that that are denying the allegations they're they're people that have their own traumas that they they just don't want to see like they That's right. um, i mean the lady that uh that cussed me out on the um on the, the Yogi Bhajan Legacy group, like, you know, she's this lady from Germany and she's like, like I think she has serious problems, you know? Um, and she probably doesn't want to face herself, you know? And, and so, I mean, yeah, I just, I really do hope that, you know, um, this is, you know, this healing space that we've created is something that will expand and be more prevalent as time goes on. And, and I, you know, I think, um, even beyond the, the, the 3HO community, um, there's a lot of yoga communities out there that are dealing with this kind of stuff right now because we're coming out of this era of the, you know, it's like the Guru era. Like there was this era of the Gurus uh, that came out of, you know, the 60s and 70s. Like my parents were hippies, you know, like they, they were at, at least they were in that era and they, they saw, you know, um, there was this Eastern knowledge that they could find and uh, follow and, and learn from and become better people. But um, there was also a dark side to that. And, you know, now once everyone's lived through those experiences of the gurus, people are, you know, having to confront the, the nasty side of that, of, of that, those times. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully we're entering, you know, a, an era where people are more honest and authentic with each other. And that means also, you know, just um, 
yeah, being vulnerable and, and being open to um, you know, facilitating that space for others to be vulnerable in a, in a loving way. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I say that a lot too. The age of the guru is dead. And yet it's also very much alive for those that are still seeking it, meaning what you're talking about with the Rama group is a prime example of that. It's, you know, people are wanting something to believe or belong to something outside of themselves. And it's a very easy thing to get wrapped up in philosophies that say they're the answer to everything. And when we're not coming from critical thinking backgrounds and we come from trauma backgrounds, it validates that deep sense of longing that we, that we desire and we have inside. Yeah. You're, you're just speaking such good truths today. Thank you so much for giving us a lens into um, the, the nurturing that community brings and also the, the disconnection it brings when we're not actually having a sense of self within it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you so much. And... Um, before we wrap up and move to your song, is there anything that you would like to say last, share? in the final parts of your story? Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much I could say. I mean, I could <laughs> go on for hours, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, I like I said, I, I, I hope that that we're entering, an, you know, a space that's, that's um, you know, better, better than before. Like, I, I hope that we're heading into a, a, you know, a better place than we were by, um, opening yourselves to these stories and and sharing these stories and um, and I yeah I mean you know, I, I saw a lot of um, a lot of these you know like you said the um, just the culture of silence and um, kind of shunning that happened uh, when people went off and wanted to do life their own way and. I think it's really important to, you know, let people live their own lives and and um, obviously be there as a as a support along the way. But you know, um, you should you should always let people make their own decisions and and just celebrate them along the way. So, mm -hmm. thank you, <clears throat> thank you for that. Um, tell us about your song. Why did you choose this song? <laughs> well, you know, I was looking for a song and I have this playlist on Spotify of like all these old, you know, 60s and 70s songs and it's called Classics. And uh, I was looking through the lyrics on them and, you know, some of them are like, uh, like, you know, just uh, this one just seemed right because um, it's kind of even more than just my story. It's a story, I think, of where our community is right now as a whole. And um, if you listen to the lyrics, you know, it's, it's obviously it's about the Vietnam War and uh, the protests that were happening back in the 60s and 70s. But it's, I think it also applies to where we are right now. And, and um, hopefully, you know, it's, it's um, you know, this is an opportunity for us to reconcile and, and for people to just acknowledge, you know, listen, listen and be heard, right? Uh, what is it they say in those um when you take those trainings on facilitation, they say like, listen, uh, speak to be heard and listen to be, I don't remember, <laughs> but you know, the important thing is to, you know, listen to others and, and just really truly listen, you know, and listen with all your heart. And then, 
when people when you're speaking you know speak with your heart too so um you know that's hopefully the place that we can that we can uh get to by continuing to have these conversations yeah beautiful well said all right folks let's listen to dave Gutham's song here this is buffalo springfield for what it's worth Something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down thank you for that we don't play the whole song because of copyright but if you'd like to listen to the song in full you can um, follow the uncomfortable conversations pot a spotify playlist which i add the link in the description you can also donate to the uncomfortable conversations podcast at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations i want to thank dave dedham for being here for another episode of the uncomfortable conversations podcast the untold stories of the kundalini yoga 3ho community if you'd like to contribute to this podcast once again you can contribute at gurunishan.com uncomfortable conversations and if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast in the future please send me an email at gn at gurunishan.com gurunishan does have a c in it so it's n-i-s-c-h-a-n Dot com. Thank you so much for being here, Dave Dedham. Thank you so much to our listeners. Please like, share, subscribe, and review this podcast on all platforms. And we'll see you again on the next episode. Thank you. <laughs>